previously on the Sports Refuge Podcast. At the end of the day, you know, you still have to hit the baseball if you're a batter. We know pitchers were juicing, too. From Delaware, almost live, this is the Sports Refuge Podcast. This is the weekly podcast featuring interviews with guests discussing their connection to sports. And now, here's your host, Earl Holland. Welcome to episode 33 of the Sports Refuge, the weekly interview where I talk with guests about their connection to sports. I'm your host, Earl Holland. In college, my guest, Spencer Tillis, impressed a potential employer with not only his personality, but his wit with an unusual presentation. That led to a career as a sports anchor with stops in Colorado, Salisbury, Maryland at WMDT, and currently at KTVE in West Monroe, Louisiana. In this episode, Tillis shares his story about his unique path to television broadcasting, his time playing college basketball, and what it was like helping build a sports department from the ground up at WMDT. And now, here's my interview with Spencer Tillis. This week, my guest, Spencer Tillis, he has been everywhere when it comes to news. He's had stops in different locations, including Salisbury, Maryland, when I met him when he was the sports anchor at WMDT in Salisbury, and I was still a journalist at the Daily Times. He's moved on to bigger and better things. He is sports anchor at KTVE in West Monroe, Louisiana. Spencer, I really do appreciate you coming on the show. Earl, it has been a long time, buddy. I appreciate you having me on, man. Thank you for coming. And I always wanted to talk to you, and I like talking to people who got into sports journalism, especially television, because that was something I had a bit of an interest of. I just never gave it a shot to go out and try to do it. I mean, I had concerns about, I guess, the superficial nature of television and you know that exists i mean as much as people like that is certainly a factor in it man that exists so how did you get interested in doing television sports i'm gonna tell you straight from the jump my route into tv i'm probably the only guy in america only person in america maybe in the history of tv that like had this type of route and i tell people all the time because we always have like students and stuff come in and kind of like they sit in on a newscast and afterwards they ask us like what we did to get in and kind of what they can do. And I'm always like, don't try and follow my path. Like I'm for certain that it's just not the normal route. I came out of high school and I knew I wanted to keep playing basketball. And so um, I got into a bunch of schools. I had a really good SAT scores and I was not that good at basketball. I was good enough that I could probably play in college, but I was not going to be playing at a four year. Um, and so there was like a JUCO right next to where I was living, and I figured I might as well like try it out. So I ended up going to this JUCO, played a couple years of basketball, was still used to the lifestyle of like high school where you can miss like assignments and teachers are like really laid back and you can show up whenever you want. And like that last week you can kind of pull together and get your grade together. It wasn't like that in college anymore. So my grades like bombed the first year. I barely was eligible to play the next year. They have to hold like a 2.0, which should not be a problem, especially at a JUCO. And I, I was close. I had to take summer classes and like retake some stuff so that I could sneak in. Um, so, but I ended up playing like there for a couple years. But then after that, um, your SAT doesn't really matter too much anymore. Like if you're going to transfer to four years, it's more like your grades at that point. And my grades, I ended up having like a good second year, but that first year kind of really brought down a lot of stuff. And I still didn't really know what I wanted to do. Uh, but I knew I kind of wanted to get out of town and kind of not stay like that. That J- that JUCO was probably I don't know ten miles from my high school that I went to, and like it was all all the guys from around town that didn't really get out too far, pretty much. 
Um, so then I made the big leap to a party school called Chico State, which I'm still repping to this day, baby. Like, oh, let's go Wildcats, which was perfect because they were the Wildcats that were red and white. My high school was Ferndale, which were also the Wildcats, and they were also red and white. So everyone thought I had all this custom gear when I showed up to college. And Lobo, it was just like all the stuff that I kept from high school, and it looked like it was – they're like, dude, I don't know where you got the new Wildcat stuff. Like, that's great, man. I get a show me. I was like, ah, man, like, this is exclusive gear. You can't, you can't, it's taking my style. And so I ended up going to Chico and again, was, was a very social person and successful in the social realm in college. And so I was kind of just getting by and I still didn't really know what I wanted to do. I knew I liked sports. I knew I wanted to be around in sports. Uh, and I knew I was not going to be good enough to play sports. And so that, that window had closed. I was seeing else what was kind of around. And I thought in my mind I wanted to do, like, radio, like, play-by-play and, like, call games. And so um, I wasn't really sure how you got into that. I never took an internship. I never really checked out a news station or, like, kind of experienced what that was like. I just took general ed classes towards getting a mass comm degree. Um, and I was taking – um, courses towards a minor in broadcast media. And I figured once I got your like, your major, you pretty much then would learn how to do it on job, like training. Not really thinking you should have any idea what you're doing before you get into the job. I just figured you show you got a degree and you'll get a job. Um, I was going into my last semester at Chico State, and I was um, – or, sorry, the last year, and it was the fall semester. The head of my journalism department um, – I was in her office hours. We were talking over something, and then she was like, oh, hey, like, I've been meaning to talk to you. There's this um, senior thesis paper opportunity um, that we would present at the uh, um, in the spring to the school board, and if it gets selected, they send a whole bunch of people to the National Association of Broadcasting Convention that's going to be in Vegas this spring. And I was like, that's cool, but I'm not really down to write a paper. I'm just trying to, like, coast here to the finish line. That sounds great for all the overachievers. That ain't me. Like, that ain't it. And she's like, well, you need 21 units to graduate, and 18 of those are going to be in my classes. So if you want to have a good grade, you should probably do this paper like I'm asking you to. And I was like, you know what? On second thought, that paper sounds like a great idea. And so I ended up doing this paper, not really kind of any idea where it was going to go. And it, it was kind of like a social construct of, like, um, mass media images that are kind of portrayed today ended up kind of putting together this thing on all things to do it on. I did it on the sitcom Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Just thinking again, I'm kind of coasting, goofing off, having some fun. And I was like, I did like a legit paper, but I picked like the most off the wall funny thing that I could find that I thought I would enjoy. So then there ends up being about like a hundred of us that do these papers. And then we go to the school board in like towards the spring. We all presented. I'm pretty much just doing this paper again so that Kiara, my, like, professor would, like, relax a little bit and, like, you know, give, have some good vibes towards the end of the spring. Um, and they select my paper and, like, four other people's paper. I don't know how. I thought it was a joke. Like, I literally thought it was a joke when they told me I was one of the people that got selected. They were like, no, like, you really had a unique take on a lot of things. And I was like, because it wasn't, like, serious on a lot of things. I thought that was what was unique about it. Everyone else was, like, stressing their minds and having a hard time talking with, like, these professors. I was goofing off, like, having a good time, just joking around, and that apparently worked enough. And so then they're like, yeah, you're going to go to this, um, the NABs in Vegas. And I was like, all right, like, whatever. Like, well, there's, like, you're going to have a, 
a panel. You guys will present it there as one of the uh, one of the groups. There's panels from all these different universities and stuff, um, and you guys will go. And I was like, all right. I was like, so what's so if we're going to Vegas? I was like, we're good to like actually be in Vegas, right? I was like, that's a smooth transition from Chico State to that lifestyle. Like, I'll have no problem blending in there. And she was like, yeah, like I normally like the school pays for the flight and the hotels. Um, and we have a window where we can either have you guys go, like, if you want to get settled in and stuff. She's like, I normally suggest people go in, like, three days before. You can do a couple days of experiencing Vegas and then, like, a recover prep day and then actually have, like, the NABs. And I was like, now you're thinking. Now we got a plan. And so we end up going to Vegas. I'm living life, living large, having a good time. Um Get through it, and the NABs was like I think like a four day, five four or five day event, um, and we present, we have a good time, we meet up with some people and stuff. The last day is a career fair day. Everybody at this career fair is sweating out of the world. They're stressed over everything because they're looking at it. They're getting graduated, you know, in a few weeks. They got to find a job, and they looked at this. I didn't think anything of it. I was chilling, sitting in the corner for the most part, eating the free food and like picking up the free stuff. Um, and at one point, like, I'm just like walking around and this guy in a suit, like, is kind of next to me and starts talking to me for a little bit. And then he's like, what are you doing here? And I was like, well, I presented at this thing and now kind of just hanging out. And he's like, isn't this like career fair? Shouldn't you be like talking to people? And I was like, yeah, probably, but you know, whatever, like, uh, just kind of hanging out. And he's just like, well, what you like majoring in and starts talking to me a little bit. And he's like, well, what did you want to do with it? And I was like, ah, I thought like play by play would be like fun, like doing radio or something like that. And he's like, oh, you ever thought about like working in TV? I was like, no, like, never did. He's like, oh, well, I'm a news director at a TV station, and we're looking for a sports guy. And I was like, oh, that's cool. We got a couple guys that work for the TV that we're here with. You might have, like, tried to, literally tried to pawn him off or, like, push him in the direction of, like, my buddy that was there. That that was, like, what he was wanting to do. And he's like, ah, oh, like, you, you know, I think you do pretty good in it. Like, you, what do you think uh, about, like, you know, maybe coming and working at our station? And I was like, you, and I'm not kidding. I quote, I was like, you did just hear me say I've never worked with a camera before. And he was like, yeah, well, I can teach you how to work a camera, but I can't really teach you how to work a room or talk to people or really know about sports. He's like, you got that side of it. And he's like, so I think if, you know, if you seem competent enough that I can teach you how to work a camera and if I can do that, you know, I think you'd be pretty successful in this job. And I was like, all right, well, that, you know, maybe that would be fun. And he's like, well, if you send me your resume tonight, I'll consider it your application and I'll offer you the job tomorrow. I was like, it's a pretty good deal. That's the best offer I've gotten so far. I have not had anyone offer me a job yet. Like, all right. And so I said it to him. He offered me the job. Um, I ended up signing the contract, faxing it in. And then on a Sunday, I graduated and walked. That Sunday night, I had to drive and I drove to Salt Lake City, Utah. Stayed there. The next day, I drove all the rest of the way to Fort Collins, Colorado, and started work that afternoon and kind of just dove in, didn't really know what to expect, didn't know anyone, never been to Colorado before. Spent a couple of years out there as a sports reporter, then made it out to Maryland, and now out here in West Monroe, so kind of chasing the career. But like I said, not the normal route. Not too many people have had that kind of streak of luck in order to kind of make something work and kind of go with it, so... Yeah, mine was a little unique, a little different than most people's. I am very curious about some of the topics that you broached on in your thesis because I'm a big fan of It's Always Sunny, and I, I could only imagine some of the topics that you touched on. 
I will start with saying that we had, I think everyone got 15 minutes. And like my opening thing was like, most of it was like PowerPoint, but my opening PowerPoint had like a link to the video for when Dennis breaks down his strategy for hooking up with women basically. And then like detaching completely. And I was like, see this right here is something that people at Chico state can relate to a lot. And like, Broke down like basically hyper masculinity, and then, but I, I literally rolled that to start. And some of the faces from like the professors that had never seen or heard of Always Sunny, that was what was gold in that assignment right there. I tell you that that really kind of set it off. But it was it was a good good assignment. I did. Looking back, I probably took the best route for it because everyone else, it's like so many of their things were probably so comparable and mine was one that was really out of left field and stood out probably more than anyone else's so it gave like a different perspective i guess on some things i don't know if it was appropriate but it was a different perspective and it worked out so i know that one of the things that the person from the news station in colorado mentioned was your ability to work the room and engage with people was that something that came naturally yeah i think well there was there's a lot of things that I think played into kind of developing that character trait for me. Uh, my dad was in the military, and so I was an army brat, and we moved around like every year or every other year. And so I got used to not really knowing people in the room and then having to be able to be like talk to people and kind of create new groups of friends and stuff. And I think that kind of developed a little bit of an extrovert like personality. I think I also just kind of had that naturally. I think I was just kind of a, always been a loud person in the room and kind of the jokative, like, fun, like, happy-go-lucky type kid. Um, and I think uh, it was easy for me to talk with him or, like, with most people about things that I'm passionate about, which have always been sports. Like, I don't have a, I don't have a hard time talking about things that I really enjoy, and it just kind of comes naturally for me, I guess, in that set. But I think a lot of it had to do with – my father, like, I forgot when I sat down at one point, I tried to count it out. Like, I was born in Stuttgart, Germany, on an American base. And then from there, we went from there to Atlanta, Georgia, to um, New Bern, North Carolina, to a place in South Dakota, a place in North Dakota. Um, my mom went to Chico State and graduated there, so we moved to Chico. We moved to Chester, we moved to Salier, we moved to Willow Creek, we moved to Petrolia, we moved to Ferndale, we moved to Fortuna, we moved to Rio Del. Um, then I moved to Chico to graduate for school, and then I moved to Fort Collins, and then Salisbury, then Biloxi, then West Monroe. So I've lived in a lot of different places, met a lot of different people, and I think I've gotten used to um, – understanding there's gonna be a lot of times when i walk in a room and i'm not gonna really know anybody and i'm gonna have a lot better time if i at least break that ice and have a conversation versus i don't know kind of keep it to myself and i know there's a lot of people i know a lot of people it seems like especially maybe millennials our age you see just looking on facebook how some people that's an anxiety that's a crippling fear for some people to just sort of even break out of their shell and just say hello to a person People don't have conversations anymore, man. Like, everything's texted and everything. These kids, I feel like an old man on his stuff right now, I'll tell you that much. But no, like, people do, like, they have a harder time, like, kind of relating or, like, conversating with people and stuff like that, man. And I think that was also a big part of Chico was, like I said, we were very, very good at talking with one another and conversing. And we had a very lively lifestyle, lots of culture. We were actually voted as the number one party school by Playboy. 
one year. And we don't even have a football team, and we're D2. That's Wildcat pride for you right there, man. You got to be doing something right for that to work out for you. So when you first started in Colorado, what was it like that first day? And what was the learning curve that you had to make, especially as you're getting into this field? It was massive. Uh, I feel like I've actually talked with a – I worked in a bureau portion. So there was me, there was one producer. And for someone who doesn't know what that is, they kind of create the – the, what's called the rundown of the show, like the different stories that an anchor will read. And then I covered what was going on in sports, and then there was one news reporter who would go out and cover like the main news story of the day. And so us three put together a newscast, and then uh, we were working at a bureau. The main station was out of Cheyenne, Wyoming. The anchors were all living up there. They would then anchor the newscast, and it would get televised in our region or our area. So we worked in kind of an exclusive little side pocket area. Um but I remember walking in the first day, and they were – I'd never looked at a rundown before. I'd never – I didn't have TV when I was in college. I never watched the news. I didn't really know what the look of it was supposed to the, – the flow of a show or anything. And I remember our boss was sitting there. He came in and was talking with us reporters, and he had said something about one of the reporters needed to go get a VO of – this, uh, it was, I think it was right when I was there, right when they had the shootings, the Aurora shootings in the theater. We also were there when uh, Colorado had the huge flooding. And then ironically, we were also there when Colorado almost burned to the ground when they had the huge mass forest fires. And like, it was a really rough time. But I remember, uh, my boss had told the female reporter that she needed to go get VO of this thing. And like, I looked around, I was like, what's VO? Never heard of it. VO is literally voiceover is what it stands for, which is just footage. Like, it just means footage. It's like the most basic term in television. And when the three faces that then were in the room turned and looked at me and thought I was, like, joking and then realized I didn't know what they were talking about, like, I was starting, I'm telling you, from the base of, like, where, like, I had no knowledge of it. Some of that actually played a little bit to my advantage in that, I hadn't developed any bad traits. I hadn't learned anything that was not what my boss would want. And so he didn't have to, like, break me of doing different things, of shooting certain styles, of doing anything that, like, wasn't to the look that the station wanted because there was nothing there. I mean, we were starting from ground zero, and so it made it a little bit easier for that. And I, the one thing that has, like, served me really well in my career so far is I've, I have a really strong work ethic, if nothing else. And so I had no problem spending in those times and those hours and stuff and kind of developing and learning on the go. And I learned a lot from my mistakes. And so originally I was horrible at shooting, but then I learned how to edit because if you can edit, you can make up for terrible footage. And so then I learned how to cover how terrible my footage was by editing pretty well. And then by the time I learned how to edit pretty well, or I mean, the time I learned to like shoot pretty well, I had that side of it. Not a lot of reporters um, they're good on the field work. They're good with talking with people. They're good with shooting their stand-ups and talking stuff, but they don't really know how to edit. They don't really know how to see a piece being put together on the back inside. And so there was like a lot of things that elevated me above certain people in my spot because I learned the full scope of it because I had no base of it. So I had to learn how to do everything and kind of grow it all in one portion rather than leaning on like one side that was a little bit stronger than the other. So when I first got in, I was excited, 
but I was wide-eyed and I had no idea what was going on. And it took a long time before like, it probably took a good six months, eight months before I felt like I was showing up to work. I was comfortable with what was going on and I knew how to like proceed from there. I still made my own schedule. I still went about myself, but like it took me a while before I've understood the rhythm of working in news. And so, it, I mean, it took a while. Was there a particular point where you finally feel confident? I feel like I can do this job with my eyes closed. Maybe not in that first job, man. That, that first one was, it, I mean, I remember I had a sports TV show that we put on called the Ram Sports Magazine Show. And I remember the first time it came around, and it was only a half-hour show that I had to produce. I remember I had worked that full day on a Wednesday, and it aired on a Thursday. Wednesday night, I started editing. And this was the when I was first learning how to edit. It took me until 8 in the morning the next day to have that half-hour show edited that it was going to air. And then I had to be right back at work at 9. So I literally went like downtown, got some breakfast, and then went right back to work and started like the next day and just didn't sleep that night because I didn't have time because I didn't know what I was doing yet. And so I think, I don't know if there was like an, one particular moment where I felt like um, everything started clicking and working. There's certainly been moments in my career where I look at and I'm like, man, like this is like a really big accomplishment for me or this is one of these those days where I like, I can tell that um, I've, been, I've been successful or that things are working for me. I remember the first time, um, when I was in um, Fort Collins, the main college university right there is um, Colorado State, and they had made the NCAA tournament for basketball, and they made the conference, um, the Mountain West tournament, which was in Vegas. And I remember when I woke up in my hotel in Vegas covering the Mountain West basketball tournament and just, like, looking around like, I'm going to cover a conference tournament and say this whole trip is paid for, and I'm, like, sending stuff back. I remember that feeling was, like, unreal. It just it, it finally dawned on me, like, I'm really out here doing this. When they made the NCAA tournament, they were in Lexington. I remember being on this tiny little plane, and as it was landing, looking out and seeing horses and planes and wondering why anyone lived out there, and then it just landed on this inky-dinky little airport, but same deal, going into the rut and being like, dude, this is where Kentucky plays. Like This is like one of the meccas of basketball, and I'm here covering a tournament again, stuff's paid for. And actually, real quick, one of the one of those cool stories that happened when I was in Vegas, again socializing, having a good time. It was like it was the end of the uh, the first night, um, and I I dealt blackjack in college. It was one of the best jobs I've ever had because I'd work a couple days a week, and my paychecks were like twelve hundred dollars. Like I mean, I was making good money for a guy that was like nineteen years old. Um, and so, said towards the end of the night, it was like two a.m. I'm actually had played pretty well and I bought in, I remember um, at the casino with like 20, 30 bucks, I was up to 300 and I was heading back to my room. And as I'm walking, all of a sudden I hear a very distinctive voice. And I was like, I know that man. And I look over and Doug Gottlieb is sitting at one of the tables. He is on an equal level of a social acceptance as to where I am at this point. And then the rest of the CBS sports crew are all sitting at this table. And I have enough liquid confidence in myself at this point to be like, they will have no problem with a young reporter sitting down and playing with them. The only seat that's open is right next to Doug. It's first base, like the very first um, player. So I was like, all right, like I asked him if I could sit. He's like, yeah, that's fine. 
And so, like, I sit down, and then I was like, I'll wait till the next shoe. Like, it's kind of a polite thing to do. Like, let them finish out so that you don't throw off the card count. Um, and he's like, oh, it's like it's fine. I was like, I'll just wait. And so I'm um, sitting there talking to him in a second, and he's like, you might as well jump in. Like, it was there. He's playing with eight decks, so it was going to take, like, ten minutes. I was like, all right. And this is the first time I look up, and it didn't dawn on me. These guys are making a lot more money than me, and they're probably playing at a very expensive table. And they were. They were playing a three hundred to thirty grand limit. So it was three hundred dollars a hand. And I only had three hundred dollars in my pocket that I had just won. But I still didn't want to be the guy that then gets up and walks away when he sees that. And I was like, You gotta play, right? You gotta play like might as well. First hand, sixteen against Nace. Worst possible situation for anybody. I'm like, all right, give me a card. Hit a face card, bust, lose three hundred dollars, not taking out any more money, and I just like looked down the table and I was like, "Well, it was fun, guys. Like, appreciate you letting me sit with you." And I just took the most like depressed, sulking walk up to my room, and then I remember the next morning, I'm moving slow, and I'm in college at this point, or I had just graduated college, and I'm still at a good level of where I can handle my alcohol and like move around like pretty quickly, and I remember I was rough the next morning. And as I go downstairs, Doug Gottlieb walks out of the gym uh, that was in, the, like, the hotel gym, and he looked fine. And he was like, oh, hey, like, what's up, man? I was like, dude, you were just, like, worked out already? He's like, dude, I've been up for three hours. I was like, how much did you sleep? He's like, about an hour and a half. And I was like, are you kidding me right now? So I don't know how that man functions. But apparently he functions on an hour and a half of sleep after being out all night and then can go cover a tournament all day. So that's a, that's what I aspire to be, but I was not that anymore, man. I tell you that I don't know how he did it. That's just crazy. Just the thought of you and Doug Gottlieb being in the same area and then seeing him the next morning. That that's just. I was so hyped, man. I was so hyped to see him. I thought for sure I was gonna sit there all night. They were gonna be like, "Dude, you should be network like today. Like you're amazing. Like you're awesome." It did not happen that way. That was the first time my dreams got crushed. But it was not the last time. The next time came um, like two weeks into me signing in Colorado. Now, I didn't really watch the NFL in high school. I watched college, and I was a big college fan, like all grown up. And my favorite college player ever was Peyton Manning. And I was like, wherever he goes, that's who I'm going to be a fan of. Like, I'm going to watch that team from now on. He ends up going to Indy. I become a Colts fan. I'm good with that. Then I sign in Colorado. Three days later, Peyton signs with the Broncos. This is right after he had, like, the whole next situation. They go with Andrew Luck. The rest is history. I'm like, does this now make me a Broncos fan? Do I jump ship and now change teams? And I'm like, finally, after a while, think about it. I'm like, I can't do that. Like, I make fun of people that change teams all the time. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to stay a Colts fan. I will support him, though. And so then I have to go cover spring, uh, like, fall camp for him. Peyton had, like, a bunch of strict rules. He basically just big-timed all the local media. So, like, you're supposed to be able to talk to players. It was, like, Monday, Wednesday, Friday. He said that's not how it's going to be. He's only available on Wednesday. And he gave local media five minutes. Five minutes for all the local media to talk to him. And then he was out. If you were network, whatever you needed. But if you were a local guy, nothing. And I remember I was sitting there. Everyone was asking questions. And I finally worked up the nerve. And I started asking him a question about, having these new wide receivers and how he's going to adjust and not throw into like Reggie Wayne and Brandon Stokely, these guys that he'd have forever. In the middle of me asking the question, 
He looks at me and he's like, that's five. Spins around, walks away. Wow. Out of, and that was my hero. I was devastated. Crushed. I, that's so hard to come back from in that moment. So that was the second time I nearly failed in this career and just, you know, spiraled out into oblivion. It's tough. Tough, man. They always say, try not to meet your heroes because you'll be ultimately disappointed. And I always think of what what Shaq says, too. Hero ain't nothing but a sandwich. Yeah, man, it was was tough. And I had a chance to meet him again. He's actually inducted to the Louisiana Sports Hall of Fame because he's from New Orleans. And so I was out there, and I – um, he missed the first day because he had some nationwide commercial he had to shoot. So that was the day I was out there. And I was like, I'm sure he's rolling in on this Buick eating Papa John's right now and stuff like that. But So he comes in the next day, and I'd like the opportunity to go back and like interview him again. But I I didn't, I didn't, couldn't do it. I couldn't face my fears, man. I was just – I didn't want to drive back and get rejected a second time. So I just <laughs> – I left it as it is. How long were you there at Colorado? Um, I signed a two-year deal, and I think I ended up signing with the station in Salisbury when I had like about a month left in the contract. So I, I almost worked the full two years there, and then I got out to Salisbury, um, and it was out there for three years with uh, WMDT. What was that like going into a situation where they hadn't had sports in years, and you're just trying to build up a presence? Man, it was daunting and challenging, but there was a lot of great things about that station. And you can still see it today. Um, the ownership gave you every tool and everything that you could need to be successful, which is all you can ask for if you're an employee in Anchor. Because um, so many stations cut back on sports or don't really care. I mean, it's the third wheel behind weather and news that is kind of, kind of forgotten about. Their owner love sports and so he gave you everything you want now he had high expectations he wanted you to deliver the goods but i would much rather have that versus an owner that didn't really care didn't really monitor what you're doing and you don't really get any feeling that you are making a difference or being successful so that was awesome the people i worked with there were incredible i'm still friends with so many of them i mean uh we were blessed to have trayvon miles who was working at the station before they had sports and he grew up there. I mean, he went to YI. He knew the area. And then to have him work with us in the sports department was incredible for me. And he's just a great person and a great friend that I still have today. Um, and so there were so many pieces to it that were great. Now, it was very challenging. There was a certain guy named Scott Abraham that was around. And that dude might be the, one of the most famous guys ever to step foot on the shore. And he cast a pretty big shadow. It was pretty tough to, like, go behind, man. Like, I mean – it is what it is. We were definitely the distant, forgotten number two in the market, and that dude is insanely good at everything that he does. And I mean, he marketed himself so well, and he marketed that department that it was um, it was really tough to try and make any ground against the, what they were doing over there because they were so good at it, and they they are. Um, but when he left, it kind of created a little bit of an opening for us. We had an opportunity where he left a big gap, and so it was kind of. A, would their new guy kind of take it or would we have an opportunity to take it? Um, and I feel like by the time I had left, it took us a little bit to figure it out. The market, the area it took us a little while to figure out how to like work the area and kind of grow. Um, but we had so many advantages in the number of people and the resources that they put in the department. And we had the right people in place 
that it kind of it picked up and it got going and stuff. And I loved it because it's one thing to walk into an area where they're the number one station and they have already had the groundwork done and kind of just keep it going. I loved the daunting challenge of saying, there is nothing here. You have a vision. Go create it in whatever that vision is and get it, get the job done. And so when we came in, um, there was, again, it was kind of similar to like how I said when I took that job in Colorado. I had like no preconceived notions of how to do anything. They had no how they wanted the sports to look. So we had the autonomy to do almost whatever we wanted and go with it. And so um, it allowed us to be really creative. It allowed us to do a lot of really fun stuff. Um, and we had a very youthful, fun vibe in our department. And we really connected with a lot of the people in that area. And there's a lot of great people on the shore um, that I'm still friends with today. And so there was a lot with that job that I just absolutely loved. And it's funny when I talk about just from my experience being a print reporter and whenever I have an interview with someone and interview somebody, it's like, yeah, great. I can check it out on WBOC. I'm like, uh, nope, this is the Daily Times. Delmarvanow.com. I mean, and that's one of those things that you always have to fight. Now, they're always going to think of the main source as opposed to your outlet. It's like if someone gets your name wrong, they're going to keep saying it and until you end up having to correct them about it. And then hopefully that they get the picture, they get the clue to follow you, to watch Channel 47 or to go to the Daily Times or something like that to let people know this isn't the only source of news. Dude, I can't tell you how many times... Because we, we had that show, Del Marva Sports Insider, and one of the things that we ran on it was we wanted to have the opportunity to kind of showcase different kids. And so at the very end of every um, block is what they're called before you go to commercial break, we would have different athletes or coaches be like, hey, you know, I'm Spencer Tillis. I play basketball at YI, and you're watching WMDT's Del Marva Sports Insider. I can't tell you how many times I got, you're watching WBOC, like the nationwide leader in sports. We dominate this market. You can go home and cry now. Like the different levels of just totally just bringing down the vibe that we got hit with, it hurt the soul, man. And I'm talking, this isn't just year one I'm talking about. That was year three. Like we were in there year three. Same kids I'd been covering for years, years. Like since they were like freshmen in high school, they now like juniors or seniors, and they still talk to me like we were at BOC. But there's no way to replace the hundred years of BOC controlling that market in three years. I mean, it's just, it is what it is. You understood what you're going against, but man, that was tough. That, that would, that would hurt the soul. Like I said, man, that's tough to deal with. Oh yeah. No, I, I definitely understand that completely. Just sort of going back to being a sports reporter, being a sports anchor. Did you have anybody you tried to replicate somebody you tried to follow and emulate? Um, not, not too many. Like I said, I didn't really watch the news a lot growing up. Um, there was certain guys that like, I watched ESPN. Like I watched a lot of network sports, but I didn't really watch like local news. And there was guys that I used to, um, really enjoy like, um, growing up when I was watching. Um, but there wasn't like one specific guy that I stood out to. And I was like, this is the guy that like, I like his delivery and stuff like growing up and not really see it from the news side. That wasn't stuff that I noticed. I just like guys that made me laugh that had like energy, but like I didn't really notice too much of them having like specific sign outs or different ways that they kind of compose themselves until after I had experience in working in the business. And then all of a sudden I had a new appreciation for like the level of talent of some of these guys that are on TV and like 
how composed and well thoughtful they are and like how well spoken they are. Um, and so like growing up, maybe it wasn't one particular guy individually. Um, and like now, like I think I've networked a lot more now. I've gotten to meet a lot more anchors and reporters and stuff, but I, I don't really know if there's particular like one. I think it would have been different too if I would have had like an internship and I was like working under like one particular guy or um, had the opportunity to kind of learn from somebody. Like I said, most of what I learned was really kind of just um, self-taught. A lot of it I was working by myself or um, I would mess something up and I would have to figure out how to fix it. So that was pretty much um, a lot of where I came from. Being at WMDT, especially creating your own brand and trying to draw on the audience, what would you say is the biggest thing that you were most proud of during your time there and and you feel like you had a big role in developing? The thing I was most proud of was, honestly, it was a very specific thing. Um, I think you were still there when Susan Pusey died, were you not? But yeah, I was there... Like I said, I have a very happy-go-lucky personality. Hard news is very difficult for me. I have a hard time covering. I was there when a player that I covered was involved with a shooting and went to prison. Like, I mean, I was there. I was around times when there was certain things that are in the realm of sports because they are sports figures, but they're really news stories. I have a very hard time with those because – I don't really enjoy talking about the bad side of things. I got into the business because I wanted to highlight people's achievements and stuff. And so when Susan died, um, I had the opportunity to like talk with her and get to know her um, a couple years before that. And so I'd, I'd known her for a few years, and she was an incredible person. I mean, we talk about she had, I think it was 20, 21, 20 state championships in field hockey as a coach. Uh, I mean, countless women that she had coached that went on to then be Division One athletes. Uh, and there's so much talked about what kind of a coach she was and how successful. We don't really talk about how amazing of a person she was. And I really – one of the coaches that I connect with. And so she gets a blood clot out of nowhere and passes away. Um, there was a lot of – self put on pressure to make sure that what I did justified and represented who she was as a woman and as a coach. And I always had a hard time doing those stories because I felt like a lot of people take those opportunities to exploit certain things on it in order to get the idea if it bleeds, it leads type stories in order. And it's not so much that you actually, uh, I, I never wanted to be a reporter that covered a story for that sake, I wanted to make sure that it was evident that I cared about what was going on, and I wanted to represent it in um, in the most honest light possible. So that was very tough for me because I was connected with it. I we we run in coverage of her of her funeral of a lot of stuff um, with that team, and that team ended up going on to winning the state championship that year. Um, and it was the first year with Brandon Castaneda like coaching them. She was part of the team that went, had a perfect, perfect season. There was a lot of emotional ties. And if you've been to Pokemoke, you know how big field hockey is to that community. So there was a lot of pressure that I put on myself. The thing that I felt I was most accomplished about was once it was done, once they had won the title, I got a handwritten letter from Susan's brother, who was the AD um, at Pokemoke, saying that his and his other brother, had Alan, had watched – um, the pieces that we had done or, and wanted to say on behalf of the family 
thank you for what we had done and thank you for like honoring Susan's memory. That was more meaningful than any award. And we'd won a few awards. I was more meaningful than the personal emails and letters made everything way more valuable to me than getting, I mean, like we get those AP awards, whatever it is. Those are voted on by other news departments and stuff. Knowing that you made a significant difference to an individual person was what really, really touched my heart and mattered a lot to me. And so that was one of the nicest things. I had gotten a couple of handwritten letters from, um, I got one from the field hockey coach at Salisbury University. That was really meaningful. And a couple of parents, we, we did a couple of running stories on, there was a soccer player from Stephen Decatur that had tore ACL on her senior year. Um, and we did a lot of stories with that. We got letters from like her side of the family and stuff. And so there was a lot of, those were the moments where I felt like I was accomplishing what I set out to do. And it's risky. It's tough because you don't know how the family is going to react until they see it, until it is out there. And so in a lot of ways, you are putting yourself out there and waiting to see and hoping that um, it is received in the way that you wanted it to be. But you can't always control the way people receive certain messages. You can only put your best spin on it or your best approach, best foot forward, but you don't really know. But when I got that, that was by far the most meaningful moment so far in my career. I always feel like when it comes to doing a feature or serious news like that, I've been so used to having to write obit stories about former coaches and things like that. You sort of, especially when it catches out, when it happens out of nowhere, it's sort of like, man, how do you do this? How do you try to reach out to everybody and try to talk to people to get the essence of what that person was like? I've done that before. I did it with uh, Chris Field coach Phil Rayfield. I've done it with... Uh, former Snow Hill coach Alan Miller, uh, which he was actually my gym teacher at one time, doing stories like that. And, you know, I've talked to Butch about different people who've passed and all those people. It feels like you try to get the best representation of who that person was. And you try to a point where you, you don't want to try to stretch yourself into like, this has to be perfect. I don't want to screw it up, but you want to try yeah. to put your best foot forward and okay, just cross fingers. Like, hopefully they like it. And there's so much, too, of the trying to be respectful for what's going on on that section, too, and kind of giving them their space, but understand you still got a job to do, but you want to do it in the right way. And, um, like, I mean, I, I saw so many bridges burned in situations like that where there was no connection with that area before, and all of a sudden a reporter shows up that had never met that team before. They just – it's not their fault. It's a story that you got to cover, but if you've never met those people before – that's a tough look showing up to a field where these people are grieving and they've never seen you before. And you're then putting a mic and a camera in their face and you've got to ask those questions. I mean, it is your job, but it's a, it's a tough, tough look in that reporter spot like that. So in some ways I was fortunate enough because I had, I had already built some sort of relationship with, you know, Pokemoke and with all of those places. And I remember one of the most powerful things that we had, um, We'd interviewed Susan after they had lost in the state semifinals the year before to Falston. Um, it went to OT, and they lost. And it was a pretty heartbreaking loss. They'd given up a goal with a few minutes left in regulation, and then they gave up the game winner um, in OT. And I was talking with her afterwards, and she was like, you know, like I think this team's going to be back better than ever next year. We didn't have that many seniors. And she started talking about how she like loved the team and loved this personality in the community and really passionate about these girls and the way that they played. We had phenomenal sound from a woman that had passed away talking about 
how much she cared about this team and the community. In the TV world, that's about as gold as you could possibly have, but you're also not wanting to exploit it, but it's her own voice giving the memory and her thoughts about these people that she cares about. And so I remember just like, there were so many times where like it was so much emotions wrapped up into like pieces, but to get that response from the family, I mean, it was amazing. Yeah. And I feel like, especially covering all of those small towns across the shore, every particular town has a particular sport that they're known for. Pokemon for field yeah. hockey, Delmar for football, Snow Hill for basketball, all different places. They all have particular things. And if you get yourself ingrained in that culture, that particular mindset, how they live, eat, breathe it. I think from the, I guess the journalism side, it's like it pays dividends in the long run. I feel like the more that you are engaged with them and you're embedded with them, they know you and you know what they're about. Yeah. Uh, they, they build a certain amount of rapport and trust with you. Like they know that um, you're actually invested with what's going on. You're not kind of just showing up to get a story. And I never wanted to be that reporter that just showed up that last game of the year and then put a mic. Like I wanted to make sure that people knew who I was and I'd been running and covering these guys kind of leading into it. Um, and then reflecting a lot of other ways when people know you, they're more comfortable on camera. They're, they're more open and honest with things. And so you get a better quality result at the end because of it. Yeah. And I just think about experiences, just Bennett baseball, their whole thing with, with their coach, coach figs, him going through his surgeries, his cancer. And then I think about Parkside baseball, having one of their players commit suicide and have to go through that run. And, and I even think of Mardella girls basketball when their longtime coach, Robin Rakul died. Those types of stories, those things happen. And when you're with them, you're sort of along the ride. And regardless of how it all ends, whether it's a championship or it's a, a heartbreaking loss, it's one of those things you're with them and you feel like you're sort of part of that whole cycle. And I feel like that's the biggest thing when they welcome you in, and like I said, you don't violate their trust with it. I think that's maybe the the sweetest reward about it. Absolutely, man. Absolutely. And it takes a while to build that rapport, like I said. But um, I think that's a mark of a good journalist where you're able to still do your job, but you're able to connect with them and they understand you're there for a job, but it's there's integrity in your work. And I always want to make sure above anything else, I had integrity with the way I was reporting. Like I said, I got into the industry because I wanted to tell other people's stories and I wanted to get out of the way. It wasn't about making a name for myself. It was about telling great sports stories and being around the environment. Um, and I feel like I always tried to keep that in the forefront of like the main goal. As you started to head eastward, especially from California to Colorado to Maryland and now a little west towards Louisiana, what was the culture change like? Was it a culture shock the further east you got? Um, a little bit. Like, I mean, this may surprise you. I'd never heard of an HBCU until I got out to Maryland. They might be on the West Coast, but I'd never heard of them until then. Uh, when I was in Colorado, I'd never heard of it. There wasn't anything like that. Colorado's a little bit of Midwest. I mean, it reminded me a lot where I was from. It wasn't really that different. Maryland, and I don't know if it was the timing of where we were in, as a country going on right then, or if it was like the area, but it became, it seemed like it was much more race aware than anywhere else I'd lived before. You know, I mean, part of that I think is living in uh, an area where 
there are a couple of HBCUs and there's a lot more pride in, in kind of knowing where you're from. Part of it, I mean, there was the riots going on in Baltimore for a little bit or like the, the protests that had happened and part of it turned into riots. Um, and there was a lot going on in our country at the time to where there was a lot of a different feel, a different vibe on the East Coast compared to where I was in the Midwest or the upper like Northwest because I was from three hours north of San Francisco in California. So I was like upper California, almost Oregon basically. South is a little different, man. I, I never lived in the South really uh, that I could recall until I got over here, man. It's it's a little it's a little a little edgy at times. There's one of the schools around here where their mascot is the Rebels, and their cheerleaders when they score touchdowns run down the bleachers, and their school flag is a Confederate flag, and everybody cheers for that. And I had never seen people. I thought it was kind of a fallacy, the idea that people look at a Confederate flag and actually believe that it is Southern pride, but there is a host of people here that really, truly believe that. And I guess if it's a symbol, it's your interpretation of a symbol, but I thought that was a joke. I didn't think that there was actually people that really believed that to be true. I stand corrected. It is a very different way of living in some ways down here that I had never really seen before so i was a little a little wide-eyed in a lot of ways of certain things that i've seen um down here i i mean that that's only part of culture there's i'm not near new orleans so we don't get like the jazz kind of cajun food stuff it's it's much more like thick arkansas pretty much from where i'm at because i'm almost to arkansas so it's much more that type of mountainy kind of um area but it's different it's a little it's definitely different and it is different than um, Maryland as well in a lot of ways, I feel like. But man, I said I was wide-eyed in a lot of ways and things that have been going on here. I tell you, one of the most popular people in town is the pastor of the biggest church. That man gets, like, doesn't pay for any football games, walks up and down the sidelines. Everybody knows him. I've never seen more churches in my life. I swear I've never seen more churches in my life. They're everywhere. They're, it's, just, it's insane. Sort of makes me think of the Dave Chappelle thing where he's talking about he's a driving in D.C., the guy's driving him, and then he starts seeing gun store, liquor store, gun store, liquor store. Well, where are you this, taking me? <laughs> all it is is churches. My goodness, I can't imagine that. I mean, me, I'm just having a culture shock. I guess it was a little bit of a culture shock. Moving from the eastern shore of Maryland to northern Delaware, it's just it's so different from what it was like down in Salisbury living where you're an hour from Baltimore, you're 40 minutes from Philadelphia, you're two hours from either train ride or driving to New York. And it's like, everything seems a little more sort of upscale-ish. I mean, you sort of feel like, okay, maybe this is like Philadelphia South. Maybe this is like a completely different area. And it's like, I don't know. I, I just don't understand. But it doesn't seem to be uh, like Louisiana, the way it sounds from your perspective. I'm telling you, man, there was, there's been some very eye opening moments in Louisiana. I mean, it, it, there's been a lot of, I've never had Cajun food, man. If you ever had Cajun food, if, if I look larger, it's probably because I, I've been packing on some weight. Then now the food here is amazing, man. Like it is special. And if you've never been to Mardi Gras, if you come in as a single man, that is also a good time to be, socially acceptable for what's going on last year i'm not even lying walking down bourbon street and i'm talking you could call this at the morning it's about 5 a.m 4 30 and all of a sudden i hear spencer and i turn around and i was like i know you and he's like hey i played basketball at parkside it was a kid from parkside high school in maryland 
was just walking down Bourbon Street that I recognized. I was like, oh, my God, like, what? And so, like, I started talking with him, and then actually uh, there was this, this past year, too, there was another kid that played football at Parkside who's now playing at Bowie. He just happened to be walking down Bourbon as well. And so, like, I ran into him and started talking with him. Like, like it's one of my favorite things is, like, running into kids from that way. Like, I went to uh, – before she had transferred to Baylor, she was at uh, Mississippi State, uh, Reagan Green, the pitcher from Laurel. Um, I went to one of her games and kind of met up with her and kind of watched her um, do her thing at the D1 level. I, this past year I drove down to um, Lafayette, Louisiana, and Maryland baseball was playing the Cajuns. And so I watched Hunter Parsons got to start that game. My boy was dealing. <laughs> He's going, going to the league, man. I, sw- I told him. I'm really happy he gets he made it to the league or he got drafted. I can't wait till he gets traded so I don't have to buy a Mets jersey because I don't want him on a horrible team like that. Like if he comes to my Braves, I'm gonna be the first guy repping a Hunter Parsons jersey at the front line every game, man. So, but I'm hyped for him. And then you know they obviously had Fisher and Burleson on that team too, a couple other Parkside kids. So I've had a chance to see some of these guys. Um, even Jordan Duffy, if you remember him out of Bennett, yeah. he started playing at North Texas, and they played in the conference for Louisiana Tech, one of the teams we cover. So he came there, and guys see him play a little bit. and um, It's awesome seeing these guys that I remember watching when they were juniors or you know freshmen in high school now kind of getting their opportunity to come out and play in the bigger lights, bigger scenes and stuff, and be like, yeah, man, I remember you. I remember playing against you in the Y and giving you buckets, man. That's what I remember. One of the things I'm, I wanted to ask you, especially when you mentioned you're a Braves fan, how did you become a Braves fan? I know you moved around a lot. I didn't know if there was a particular, you know, particular player, if it was just sort of being exposed to watching the Braves a lot. Was it just seeing them on the Superstation and all that? Dude, there was a particular player, or there should have been, if he wasn't so selfish, and that would be my dad. My old man got drafted by the Braves coming out of high school. He was a pitcher, played just south of Monterey in California. And he had offers back then. It was the Pac-12, Pac-10, whatever it was before. I don't know, Pac something, whatever it was back then. And it offers from like Arizona and all these other schools and stuff like that. He was a stud. He's a really good athlete. But he's also a mama's boy. And so my grandma was the art teacher at this private little Christian college. And my grandpa was the dean there. And so my dad said, hey, I think I'm going to end up going to Arizona and play baseball. And she's like, hey, no, you're not. You're going to come to this Bible school, and now you're going to come here to be a chaplain. He's like, hey, you're right. I'm going to come to this Bible school and come be a chaplain. And so he ends up enrolling in this private Bible school. They don't even have a baseball team. And so he stops playing baseball so that he can go there. And then the thing that really, really frustrates me is they convince him to go there and play basketball on this school. The NAIA, which is like the equivalent of like a D2, somewhere around there. Um, and he retires after his four years as the school's all-time leader in points and rebounds. He didn't even like playing basketball. That wasn't even his sport. He was a baseball player. I just got – and I was like, you could have given me none of your athletic ability. You had to let me give me everything for mom. Like, I played basketball, and I loved it, and I was terrible. If you would have just given me a piece of what you had – and had my work ethic, like, I could have been something. And I was like, and then you had the audacity, the selfish behavior of my father to give up the possibility of being a pro baseball player to go and do something like become a doctor like he is. And so now he's a doctor instead of, I was like, we could have had an easy life, man. No. Instead, he had to go to college. 
and then become a doctor after being in the military. Some people, I tell you, man. So, yeah, I had no choice. I had to be a Braves fan. I wish I would have been able to buy a Tillis Braves jersey, but unfortunately, the Pops didn't go that way. What was your best statistical basketball game playing in high school or JUCO? Uh, my best one in JUCO was my last game. I was the guy that started, but in order to just, like, get the tempo going, and then I, I pulled up a nice chair for most of the game. But my last game, um, I had 11 points. I had two threes. No big deal, maybe. One in the corner, one from the top of the arc. I also, not to brag, but statistically, I did leave the country in free throw percentage my sophomore year. You have a minimum requirement of shooting 10 free throws. I shot 10 free throws on the year, and I made every one of them. So statistically, I was number one in the books on free throw percentage. So, I mean, if you want to look me up, I'm probably you know somewhere out there. Um, high school, uh, we were really balanced. Um, I think, like, my best game, I maybe cracked in the 20s, like, maybe once or twice. But, I mean, I, I probably had most games – most of my good games would probably be around, like, double-doubles with, like, 15, somewhere around there, like 15 points, 10 rebounds. I was the only guy on our high school team that was over six foot. We ran a full-court press, and my job was to be the guy at the very end and try and take a charge. And so I had guys just trying to dunk on me, like, all day long. And I slid underneath and was like, oh, dear Lord, here it comes again. Like, getting baptized by these guys that were, like, good athletes while I wasn't. And that was that was my role. Everyone's got their role. Mine was just to wear one for the team. From playing basketball a lot, especially watching it and, and covering a lot of these high school kids, what is the biggest difference that you see maybe comparing basketball the way the kids play it now as to what you see maybe in the pros? Is there something that they're missing fundamentally-wise or – the, the game evolved so much, which is part of the reason why, like, I get really annoyed when people start saying that, like, no one's ever going to be as good as Michael Jordan and stuff. Like, I look at some things like LeBron, I think you could argue, is better now than, like, Jordan never was. The league is better. The average athlete's better. The average athlete is bigger and stronger and faster. And if they're doing comparable stats now, wouldn't it be fair to say that if he's doing it against better competition that he is then better if he's maintaining the same stats? Like, I get – you go six for six in the finals is like the always the thing they go back to. That just means you lost in earlier rounds, though. It's not like you only played six years in the league. He lost in earlier rounds. Are we rewarding it if you lose in the Eastern Conference finals versus not the actual finals? Why is that better? You didn't make it, like, less farther in the tournament. But if I look at, like, kids now, it's weird, man. Like, I mean, I'm, I'm a big Duke fan for basketball. Duke basketball looks nothing even just 10 years ago to where it is now. 10 years ago, it was a bunch of guys that would stay for four years. They, they would work an offense, pass around. There's so much iso ball now. There's so many guys. And in some ways, you can justify it. Some of these guys are so incredible in like, their ability to go one-on-one, -on -one, and they're such an, an unbelievable athletes. Like, why wouldn't you give them that opportunity? But then you always see these guys or teams like Gonzaga where that's not their style or Virginia and they're making deep runs in the tournament off of being team players and like running sets and stuff. And I was never, and maybe it's because I was never good enough to be like an ISO player, but I've always loved watching sets and like loved watching the beauty of rhythm of five guys working together on a court. And I think the thing that like I notice a lot in, and I think you know, that's why you notice like why high is really good because why I still run sets, why I, they still run stuff that is organized basketball even with the good players they have. But they, they have a lot more restraint and they have a lot more confined in what they do so that they fit to play together. Some of these other teams can have better players, 
But if they're just playing open gym ball, I mean, they might as well not be running anything other than that's the guy you're guarding, he's guarding you, like, just win your matchup and then, like, play. Like, there's no sets. And uh, now I'm sounding real old, but the fundamentals of the game weren't being taught as well as they used to be. And so, like, I feel like um, some of the practices I remember, like, going in and watching, like, I'll watch, they pretty much just let these kids play basketball like it was open gym. They don't practice running sets. They don't practice, um, like, like, the form for running defense or different stuff like that. And so I think a lot of ways the fundamentals are probably worse. The athletes are a lot better. The athletes have gotten bigger. They've gotten stronger. In some ways, in some capacity, the skill has improved. Like, when has there ever been a shooter as good as Curry? A guy that can not just shoot threes, but is shooting threes eight feet behind the line rhythm and comfortable, and it looks, like, fine for him. There's never been as much skill as there is in the league or in – uh, you could probably say there's been more skill in college, but that's a bigger factor is that guys aren't staying around as long as they used to be. Like, I mean, there would still be – can you imagine if Zion was in college for three more years? That boy is a tank. Like, if he he looked insane in year one as a freshman, but if he was there for three more years, like, it would be un, unreal. Like, the, so I think the talent pool has probably dropped only because of that. Um, but, yeah, I, I think the fundamentals and then kind of the team ball – aspect of a lot of basketball has really left, which is also interesting because that's kind of what makes the Raptors really good. They don't run a lot of ISO stuff, and it helps when your best player isn't selfish. Kawhi is a weird dude. Let's start there. Kawhi is awkward and strange, but that boy can hoop. He can do a lot of stuff. Boardman gets paid, and he's about to get paid, as he said, but he's a weird dude. So, like, I I certainly believe that teamwork – is bigger than the pieces that in, in its parts. And so, like, you end up being better as a whole if you're able to play together than being individual. I think that's part of the reason why Duke lost this year. They have the two best players in the country, and you, you don't win the championship with two best player and, you know, good role players. It's because they ran all ISO stuff. It's kind of been what's going on with Golden State right now. They've gotten away from their, their system, that, and injuries, and, you know, that's what the Raptors do is run its team set. So team sets aren't really ran nearly as much. Better athletes, probably better skill. Fundamentals are way worse. And it makes me think about the NCAA tournament. I feel like now, and nothing against Steph Curry, but the problem is a lot of kids are starting to try to emulate him, and then they sacrifice basketball IQ. Because I just think of a couple of tournaments a couple of years ago, maybe actually maybe last year, where one team, all you had to do was go, you're, you're down by one. You have the last possession. All you got to do is get two. You don't have to try to make a rainmaker when if you can find somebody wide open under the basket, that's all you need. And I feel like people want to be a hero, and sometimes it doesn't work out, especially if you can find the open guy under the basket or close one, get an easier shot. Why take that risk of just trying to you know hit one out from 35 feet, even if you think it's your shot? Yeah, and in the way the game has evolved, it's changed so much. Like when I played... I played like a trailer five and like we ran a little bit of that Princeton offense, which is essentially really spacing out and giving the floor room for guys to cut and move. But before that, like the thing was really like what the, you know, the Lakers ran with Shaq or those type of teams. They call it the triangle then, but that was kind of triangle is more based off movement. But really the essence is a big guy in the paint and the guys that feed him and then kind of can play off of, but your entire offense was built around, getting the ball as close to the hoop as possible with a guy to get a high percentage shot. 
big guys are like gone, partially because there are so few that are that dominant and that good that you can build a team around it. And normally your best players now are the guys that are bringing up the ball or that are guards. And so you want to create as much space as possible. And so it's kind of the LeBron effect. People realize LeBron's best if there's nobody else in the key that's kind of like getting in his way. Let him go be a monster and get to the paint and try and score and just beat his guy one-on-one. And then if they stop him or try whether they come up with help, that's when you start kicking out. So, like, the idea of the five or, like, the center is, like, transformed into now it's either a guy that can catch lobs and dunk and just get out of the way or it's a guy that can shoot threes, like, in the corner and you just space him out. And I was actually – I tweeted this out the other day. Um, there's a, a center for the Bucks. His name is Brook Lopez. His first seven years in the league, seven years, he had shot 11 threes and didn't make one in seven years. The last four years, he's averaged shooting over 143s a season. And this past year, he made something like 85 or 93s on the year. Like he was averaging making like two and a half a game. But like he literally had to completely change his game or else he wouldn't have been able to stick around in the league. And now he might as well be, and he is, essentially a 7-2 shooting guard, shooter in the corner or something like that. I mean, that's all he does is he doesn't ever play on the block anymore on the post. And so the game has really changed, partially because guards have gotten so good and you kind of want to create that space. But at some point, it'd be nice to see a guy that can have his back to the basket and give you consistent points in the paint and be like, you know, back to what – the game initially was, which was before the three-point line, it was just who can get the highest percentage shots, basically. Game really changed with the three-point line. And I think about two big things that may have played a huge impact. First, I start seeing Mike D'Antoni's offense, that offense running gun up and down the court. I feel like it's showtime without, without a capable big man, because even when Dwight was there in Houston, you know, it – you know, he, he's no Kareem, he's no Shaq, he's no Olajuwon, he's none of those guys. But then all of a sudden I start seeing Kevin Love start hitting three-pointers, and then I feel like that's the beginning of the end of the of the potent big man, and then all of a sudden Kevin Love hurt my soul, man. That boy had a 30-30 game with the Timberwolves. 30 points and 30 rebounds, and he was as round as the basketball was, and he was just bullying kids on the block. And then all of a sudden... I don't know if you remember this. When he first went to the Cavaliers, he went and was like working out and was like gone all summer. He came back and had dropped like 50 pounds. He grew out his hair and he was playing with a bandana. He looked like some kid that had just went like overseas on an exchange student program and was coming back to tell you how much better the ice cream was in Italy. And like, you're like, dude, nobody asked. Like, what are you doing right now? And he couldn't do like anything on the block anymore. Everyone was just bullying him because he was so much smaller now. Like he used to like he used to be a little bit like uh, not Shaq. There was another dude from uh, LSU that ended up playing for the Cavaliers. I can't think of his name, but he was like a big guy, but he played below the rim. But he was so much bigger and stronger that he could just get position and score. Um, he used to be that guy. He's not that guy anymore. He's not him. He's just he's gone. He's now just same deal. Just a guy that shoots threes and disappeared on that team for so many so long. Like he ended up being just a guy that. LeBron would kick out to to kick threes and shoot threes. Though to be fair, if you're on a team with LeBron and Kyrie, them boys ain't ain't really looking to let you do your own thing. They gonna kick out when you're open to get an assist, but they're not really looking to run an offense so much as they're gonna attack and then only give it up if it 
you know, they're someone stops them pretty much. I know we were just talking a little earlier about Michael Jordan and everybody saying he's the greatest of all time. And then you look at it, there's a lot of other people who are in the greatest of all time discussion that people don't mention. Everybody will probably start with Kareem just because he has a a resume comparable, maybe even better than Jordan's, except maybe he's lost a couple of times in the finals, but he lost to someone legit like Larry Bird in the Celtics. But then you also look at Bill Russell, more rings than fingers. But he was playing in like the 60s against like podiatrists and stuff. There was only 12 teams in the league back then. Russell, like, I don't even, like, honestly, I hate when people talk about Russell because, first of all, he's like, seems like a nice dude, but... Those rings are kind of fraudulent. Those are kind of like the Kevin Durant rings, in my opinion. Like, I like, I see you got it, but, like, maybe take that off when you come to the dinner table because we ain't even trying to, like, listen to you right now, Kevin. Like, relax a little bit. Like, he didn't play. There were so few teams. There's 12 teams, and they keep talking about how he always made the finals. You had to win one series to make the finals back then. That boy was winning two series to win a championship. Like, is that really that impressive? Like, is that that big of a deal? Like, all right, like. Sure, man, you won like eight games, like crazy. They were on some Hall of Fame crazy teams back then, but there's only so many teams to play on. The Wilt Chamberlain, like, that dude averaged 50. Averaged 50. They changed the rules. They changed, like, the fact that you weren't allowed to inbound the ball. And Like, originally, there was no rules about, like, how you could do it. So they would throw it over the hoop, and he would just jump up over everybody, like, over the backboard, catch it, and dunk it. They changed that rule. Like, you can't throw lobs over the backboard anymore when you're on that low because of there was nobody that could stop this dude that was a seven-feet-tall guy that should be on a track field because he was about 106 pounds at the time. But I almost feel like you got to separate post players from guards. Like, I've always felt like that. Like, if you want to say, like, the best guards, like, that conversation. I used to really think Kobe was going to be, like, overtake Jordan, partially because I'm a Lakers fan. So, like, I'm probably mostly because I'm a Lakers fan. I'll be honest. That's fair. But it got tough down the stretches. Once his Achilles went, he kind of fell off a little bit. Boy, did have 60 points in his final game, though. I'm just saying. Pointless game. Did not matter for anything for the postseason or anything like that. But that boy dropped 60 dime on him. That's pretty good. But, like, I don't know. Like, there's so many things that people point at for why Jordan's the best player ever. And the arguments are so flawed, in my opinion. Like, they just – like, if you say six for six, again – the dude played more than six years. That just means he lost in earlier rounds in the playoffs. And they're like, dude, you, well, LeBron lost all these games in the finals. Well, he got to the finals more times than Le- than Jordan has at this point. Shouldn't that be worth something? If you get to the finish line, like if you get to the final game, shouldn't that be more valuable than losing early on in the playoffs? Why are we rewarding Jordan for losing early? Why is that a good thing? I don't understand why that's valuable. You know, and I also think about this. I always wonder, there's two big uh, rivalries, two finals matchups. I would have loved to see that we never got the chance to see it just in the past 25 years. The Rockets against the Bulls and those two years that Jordan was gone. That would have been interesting because maybe Olajuwon changes the legend of Jordan because the Bulls had no one that could stop Olajuwon. That boy was unbelievable. He was insanely skilled. He was one of the last really skilled big men, and he was fun to watch. That boy was insane. And then the other one, of course, Kobe versus LeBron. We always wanted to see. That's the one that I feel like, man, if we got I got that. cheated on that. Kobe did his part. He got there that year, and then 
don't know. LeBron had to go team up with uh, boys down in the Banana Boat Brothers down there in Miami to go get his ring. I think if you can say you lost to Dwight Howard in a playoff series, that probably puts a dent in your legacy too. Dude, people forget how good Dwight Howard was before his back hurt. Like, that boy dropped 44 in a playoff game, and it was like all dunks. And, like, he had, he had a triple-double almost with, like, blocks and rebounds and dunks. Like, that was it. He used to be a freak athlete. Now, he can't make a two-foot jump hook. He can't make anything other than a dunk. For sure can't make a free throw. Like, there's some massive holes in his game. But before he got hurt, that boy could fly from one side of the paint to the other. And, like, defensively, he was insane. And then you put him on a team full of shooters – like, it's pretty good. Like it worked pretty well. Like it almost would be like if he was on Golden State this year. Like if he was still healthy, like he'd help him more than Boogie does. Boogie doesn't really do nothing for him. Like I mean, that boy can shoot more than obviously. Um, I mean, I could shoot more than Dwight can, but like he, he just there's never been kind of a guy like that. That was just a freak athlete. I'm telling you, defensively he was insane back then. He fell off. Believe me, he came to the Lakers. I remember what he liked when he was playing for the Lakers. And then we gave up two first-round draft picks to go get Steve Nash and his broken back. And I'm sitting here just wondering what we're doing. And that started the spiral of eight years of famine, like the Bible told us was going to happen. They let us feast for eight years as Laker fans, and now we're going through eight years of famine. I just think about I always compare that team to the 04 Lakers team where – um, where Malone and Peyton and oh oh my God I always think about it because I'm doing my internship in DC and I remember watching that series it was probably in my mind the first five game sweep I've ever seen in my life because basically save for Kobe's shot to win the Lakers at one game Detroit had their number the whole time they just let Shaq do whatever he want you know we can't stop Shaq but we can stop everybody else. Real talk about that series, and you may not believe this, but I am dead serious. We were living in Petrolia at the time. I am a eighth grader or freshman, um, and I'm a diehard Lakers fan. Like when I was a kid growing up, I was a like way more invested like emotionally in sports than I am now. And after they had lost Game Four, and it was like pretty for certain you're going to lose the series down three one. I am losing it in my room. Like, I all of a sudden have a hard time breathing, and my chest starts tightening up, and it gets really tight and really tight, and all of a sudden I really can't – like, every breath is getting raspy, and I'm, like, trying to get to my mom who's upstairs, and I get out of bed and, like, start stumbling and literally crawl up the stairs because I can't walk for whatever reason. And I get up there, and I start yelling at my mom. I was like, we got to go to the hospital. Like, I can't breathe. Like, it all hurts. And she's like, dude, what, what's going on? What happened? And I was like, I don't know. Like, everything's just like, like locking up, and I can't breathe. And she's like, what, what What? were you doing? I was like, the Lakers just lost. We're going to lose the finals. And she, like, looked at me. She's like, are you having a panic attack? And I was like, I don't know. Like, I can't breathe. Like, everything hurts. And she's just like – and she legit started falling on the ground laughing at me because I had, honest to God, had a panic attack because I knew we were going to lose the finals at that point, and I didn't know how to handle it as a little 13, 14-year-old kid or whatever I was at the time. It was tough, man. It was emotional. Again, it was, growing up, I knew I liked sports. I, it was tough on me when that happened, though. 
Rip Hamilton just hitting every single baseline jumper ever invented. As a Wizards Bullets fan, I see those oh four oh five. I see those Pistons, and I think, man, all those guys were bullets at one point. Wizards at one point, and they all got away. Rasheed, Ben Wallace, Rip Hamilton, and it's like, man, mm. oh boy. And then all oh, we got this. By the way, your your Wizards had a good year, man. Y'all looking looking right. John Wall looking <laughs> looking oh, solid. You guys are good, man. Oh, my God. And there's all this talk now that they're trying to reach out to Toronto's president of basketball operations and basically give him a king's ransom to take over. Mazai is the man. That boy is good. Like, I wanted him to come to the Lakers because I was in um, Colorado when he was working with the Nuggets, and he turned them um, – he was the guy that kind of orchestrated getting rid of Carmelo, and then he created that team that won, like – they. He's kind of known for winning regular seasons and then not having a superstar and then, like, falling apart in the postseason. He finally got a superstar with Kawhi, and he had every other piece you could want. And then they went all in getting Marcus All in the trade and everything else, too. But he is – I mean, that boy is working wonders because they were going nowhere fast with the same roster. And the fact that he flipped a couple guys that you would find in the YMCA and DeMar DeRozan and somehow not only got Kawhi but gets Danny Green – and then goes and works all this stuff. Like, that boy's got magic fingertips calling people up. I don't know what voodoo he did on Greg Popovich to make that deal happen. By the way, how salty can Popovich be right now? You know that man sipping wine in his cellar, trying to figure out how to take back over the world, and he is just so mad that Kawhi is having so much success right now. He's hating life. I even wonder if, if uh, Papa's coming back, especially you know, everything he's been going through with his wife passing and all that. It's like... Is it even worth coming back? You think about it now. It's like I've done what I've already done, needed to do, and just maybe take oh, he's, some time away. He's absolutely got nothing left to prove. I mean, whatever he coaches now, I mean, it's got to be just for like the love of coaching. But he's done everything you could ever accomplish in coaching. He's got to be on the Mount Rushmore of coaches. Him, like Arback, like Phil Jackson. You maybe throw him to whatever last coach you want, but he's got to be in that very short list of like the greatest basketball coaches to ever live. Yeah, I, I honestly can't think of who the the fourth one would be on that list because it's just some of these other guys were were maybe journeyman coaches, and most of the guys end up coaching for the Celtics and just got a ring or two here or there before somebody else left and somebody else moved on and took over that job yeah. and got a ring or two there too. And, I know. Maybe Pat Riley. He might be the only other person Maybe. I can think of. Someday you got to sit down and make the Mount Rushmore of coaches that the Wizards have had, and that'll be a very fun, painful list for you to go over. Oh, Eddie Jordan, Dick Mata, um, Flip Saunders, and. That's I not bad. Flip could do a little something. Yeah, I mean, honestly, that's pretty much it. Dick Mata because he won the title. Uh, Eddie Jordan because he had probably the best run as Wizards coach. Um, yeah, Flip because he, he got them a little bit further. And I guess right now Randy Whitman because uh, Scott Brooks, no. I think that was all a failed ploy by Ernie Grunfeld trying to to, hey, we get we got his former coach. We got his former high school coach. Let's get Kevin Durant to come to D.C. He's right from here. And it seemed like, yeah, that plan fell apart, and that's why Ernie Grunfeld, after 16 years, is unemployed. Speaking um, of being a Wizards fan, you'd probably be pretty jealous to know that in this area, not only is Carl Malone right from where I cover, um, but Willis Reed is from this area. 
Um, there are two more guys that were on that Wizards team that won the title. Um, gosh, what? They're, they're right there, and I've met them all because they all went to, like, Grambling, which is one of the HBCUs that's right here in town. Um, and so they're all they're good people, man. They just hang around town and stuff, so I met a bunch of them. There's so much random pockets of good talent like this area. There's that Paul Millsap is from this area. Um, there's really good football and basketball players that just – I mean, I'm talking stick town, like Pokemon size, and then all of a sudden they're coming up with, like, a top 50 all-time basketball player. And they're like, I don't know what you were doing, but all right, sure, man, like – you must have been sitting in your backyard shooting at a basket for hours on end watching the sun go by before you took mom and pop's horse and cattle in town. As a sports anchor, do you see yourself, and he mentioned it earlier, you were a big, uh, big sports fan as you were when you were younger, but do you feel like the older you get, especially working in the sports uh, journalism, working as a sports reporter, that you see yourself maybe withdrawing from national sports and just sort of being more affiliated with your teams? Because I always wonder that because the older I've got, I've sort of broadened my scope of what teams I watch and what teams I follow. It's the Orioles, the Redskins, the Capitals, and the Wizards. To me, I used to watch everything growing up, but now it's not as important, not as interesting. Yeah, certainly that way. And I feel like... Um like, I don't even have TV at my house, so, like, I don't really watch um, a lot of the, uh, like, the national stuff. There's TVs all around our office and stuff like that, or, like, I, I check scores online and stuff like that. But I, when I was, like, especially, like you said, like, when I was in middle school, like, growing up, like, I would watch every NBA game I could find, and I could tell you the third leading scorer on the Nets from way back when and be like, dude, Kerry Kittles, man, you got to watch out for him, like, off the dribble. Like, I couldn't tell you who their main guy is now if, well, it wasn't for him getting on Snapchat and everything, but we we gonna forgive him for the D'Angelo can go about his business right now. I ain't gonna bring him up, but like uh, no, like I used to just watch whatever sports I could find and stuff. Now, um, and I think part of it is media and sports media is so relevant and everywhere you go, it's so accessible. Rather, like I mean, I can get every score on my phone now. There wasn't I didn't have that in high school. I didn't have like um, that ability. Um, so now, like, I see highlights on Twitter all the time if, like, if I wanted to or if I, even if I didn't want to, it just pops up. And so, like, I follow my teams for the most part, but, like, I, I didn't really know. God, I had no idea the Pistons were good this year until they were in the playoffs. And I was like, oh, hey, look at that. Like, they're actually not bad, apparently. And so I guess my scope on a lot of the other teams um, has probably dwindled um, as I get older, and it's more just kind of watching my own teams. Yeah, I didn't even know the Magic were even decent for them to even get into the playoffs. I I didn't know they were that good or that. O- I only knew that because like my best friend over here is from Orlando and he's a diehard Magic fan, which is great because we always get to talk about what happened when they played the Lakers in the finals. And for some reason, Jameer Nelson decided to back off Derek Fisher in that game time three, which went to OT and then we won the title and everything. And he's also probably probably the only reason I defend Dwight Howard now. Is because he swears by him as the greatest player ever. Um, but he always streamed games on his laptop. And I was like, dude, we're watching some bums out here. Like, these are guys I've never heard of. Like, Luke Fournier is like, he was like the eighth best player on the Nuggets, like, when I was over there. And now he's like your starting shooting guard. Like, Mo Bamba only because he's got a good song after him. Like, how did, why else would we know Mo Bamba at this point in his career? Like, why would we ever watch this dude? P. Ross, the boss, like, oh, and he pulled out the most obscure vets. Oh, he broke the record for most threes by a bench player. Why do I care, man? This is the magic. Like, they're terrible. 
Yeah, that's the only reason I know anything about what's going on over there. I blame Connor Ingles. Look him up. That's the man. When you think of people who mention the names, it's like that whole stretch maybe in like the 90s where everybody would say Zab Judah in his name in their songs. And then Zab Judah, everybody remembers the chicken dance when he got knocked out. <laughs> that's basically when I think of Zab Judah now, that's what I think of. And the fact that he was name dropped in so many songs. It's just a weird, unique name, too, I guess. That's probably why you make... I'm waiting, dude, the diss tracks that come out from Drake if the Raptors win the title, oh, that's going to be gold. That's going to be the anthem on, like, every basketball court coming this next year. But if they blow this lead, oh, good Lord. Oh, he might have to retire. He might have to retire. I thought he would have retired after Pusha T uh, came out and... uh, broke his spirit. <laughs> I wasn't hiding my kid from the world. I was hiding the world from my kid. So many dads were like, boom, there's the line. That's the line I'm going to draw from now on. When he asked me why, <laughs> when he grows up old enough to ask, I'm going to tell him. <laughs> I was trying to protect him. <laughs> <laughs> um, Pusha T, they, he came, Pusha T came with a body bag. I didn't even know he had anything like that, man. He wrapped that dude up. Put him away. <laughs> he dextered him so fast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, and I'm not a big uh, modern music guy. Just like I feel like old soul that like listens to like a lot of 80s, 90s, and early 2000s stuff. Just because you know that's when I grew up, and now I just can't get into it. But man, when I heard just about the thing, idea. people used to storytell a lot in rap, and I don't feel like it's. The only there is the guy that's modern that I really like is J Cole. I feel like he actually like does a lot of his raps are more stories than it's not so much a beat. It's more he actually has like a good rhythm, a good vibe. He's got good lyrics. Um, but there there aren't that many, man. A lot of them are just hip hop, like with a good beat, pretty much. Which I mean, I still listen to. Like, it ain't killing me, but you know, it's a lot different from where it was. Yeah, I was uh, sitting watching an episode of Ellen, and they had Jaden Smith and Willow Smith, and basically it's just them in auto tune. And I'm like, I I, I don't get it. I just don't dude, get it. I mean, James Smith's cut from that same cloth of Kawhi Leonard. That's an odd dude, man. Oh, that's that is a different cat. But, but I don't know, man. God bless him. <laughs> He's just a little different. I just think of Dave Chappelle as Rick James, and after uh, Eddie Murphy and Charlie Murphy stomped him in his own apartment, said they never should have gave y'all money. They never <laughs> gave y'all money because <laughs> honestly, that's how you can buy a new couch. How am I supposed to get new legs? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like oh man. At this point, like being thirty six, I just like. I've lost it. I don't understand. I'll just go on, go on to watch like Lionel Richie in concert and like only being 36. I'm like, oh, eh, whatever. I'll tell you what. I started realizing I was getting old when I'm watching all these kids dance. And I'm like, that kind of looks like that would hurt my back a little bit. Like, I don't know how your knees bend like that anymore. And then I'm like, yeah, I must be getting real old now that I'm, I'm looking at the health concerns of dancing more than anything. I don't know if I have that covered. I, yeah, I just think of the Humpty Dance. That was hard enough to do. You're trying to dance like your legs are broken, like you're having a convulsion. It's like, no, that's tough enough as it is. I mean, I can't do all this other stuff. Oh, man. We aging ourselves now, man. Oh, God. Well, Spencer, I really do appreciate you coming on the podcast and talking about your career and, as you would say, your unconventional route to becoming a sports 
anchor and a sports personality. What are some of the ways that people can reach out to you and, and connect with you? Um, you know, I'm still all over social media. You can find me on Twitter on Spencer. My name's spelled real weird. It's got an S-E-R, so it's S-P and S-E-R underscore Tillis. Um, I'm on Instagram, man. I'm on Facebook. If you look for me out there, I'm sure like a lot of your listeners and stuff, we're going to have mutual friends, man. I was out there on the shore. So. And I thank you for having me on, man. I, I really enjoy I've listened to a lot of your ones. I listened to one with Shane Leatherberry and a few other ones, man, and I really enjoy it, man. Oh, yeah, I, I do appreciate it. I always say I never know who actually is listening because when I hear it's like, oh, yeah, I heard your episode before. I'm like, wow, I did not know that because you always see on Facebook. You never know that beyond the Facebook likes and things like that. You never know who really hears it. I've heard people maybe like from Canada or like from Iceland who've listened to the show just by tracking some of the stuff. I'm like, Iceland? I don't even know anybody who's in Iceland. <laughs> Uh, me either, man. So if you're out there, Iceland, we appreciate you, man. You guys, are, you guys are really driving the ratings. Thank you for your support. I'd like to thank Spencer Tillis for being my guest on this edition of the Sports Refuge. If you know anyone who might find this episode of interest, don't forget to share. You can also subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, Podbean, and wherever else podcasts are heard. Next time, my guest is Jean Goblinger, a Cleveland native who followed her beloved Browns to Maryland more than a decade after the move. She'll discuss what it's being like married to a Steelers fan, following a childhood dream and becoming a teacher, and what Hall of Fame player attempted to make an overture to her. Until next time, this is Earl Holland saying thanks for listening and have a good one. You've been listening to the Sports Refuge Podcast. For more information about our show and our guests, go to our website at thesportsrefuge.com. Follow us on Twitter at The Sports Refuge, on Instagram at Sports Refuge Sports Blog, and on Facebook at The Sports Refuge Sports Blog. Thank you for listening.